millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conceptually, it's not like uh, defending a castle. You know, cybersecurity is about defending an ecosystem. Who are the at-risk communities here? How can we reach them? How can we help them minimise harm? It's not the technical skills. It's almost the corporate affairs skills. It's the communication, the sociology type skills that we really need to be investing in. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. The comments you just heard were from Tim Watts, MP, Shadow Assistant Minister for Cybersecurity and Communications. In this program, he joins Professor Rory Medcalf for the latest episode of our Security Summit series. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. So welcome to the National Security Podcast and to our National Security Summit series. I'm Rory Medcalf, the head of the National Security College here at the Australian National University. Our special guest today uh, is Tim Watts. Uh, Tim wears several hats, but uh, I guess for our um, for our program, it's really useful to know, Tim, that you are the Shadow Assistant Minister for Cybersecurity and communications, and of course, you're the uh, the Labor member for the seat of Jellybrand in Victoria. Um, Tim, it's great to have you on the program. I know that uh, you're one of those parliamentarians who uh, thinks a lot about Australia's national security and national interests with, a, I think, quite a long view, uh, not only in your work as a parliamentarian, but in uh, a number of books that you've written now, uh, a lot of the public commentary that, that you provide. So what I'd like to do on the program today is, is have a conversation with you, particularly about cybersecurity and national cyber resilience. So going to your, I guess, your your special subject, uh, your, your shadow portfolio. But also, I would um, really like to start off with a broader conversation with you about Australia, Australia's national security. Here at the National Security College, uh, we, we examine national security through uh, lenses like the national interest or national interests plural uh, through values uh, and principles and indeed through national identity which I know is um, is really such a, a complex question here in Australia but it's really interesting to know how others in the debate and um, and leaders in the debate are thinking about these issues I'd love to hear your take on how you define Australia's national security. Well, thanks for that, Rory, and, and thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm a, a long-time listener, a first-time guest. As they say. Um, <laughs> as they say. Well, um, it has given me the opportunity, you know, listening to previous particularly political leaders um, on this podcast answer this question. I think it's a really good uh, grounding question um, to establish where people are coming from in this issue. Um, I'm sure there are, are better academic definitions, but the way that I think about national security is really um, our capability to be resilient against threats to you know, the Australian way of life, the things that we really value um, about the way that our country operates. And sort of most fundamentally, obviously, there, there's our ability to protect the nation against um, attack from you know, other nation states, so protect the physical safety of Australian citizens. But but more than that, I think it's also about protecting the the, the aspects of Australian society that we really view as core to our identity of Australians. And, you know, obviously most significantly there are our democratic processes, um, our sovereignty, our ability to make decisions for ourselves about what to do as a group. Um, I think that is p- a core part of the National Security Project. It's interesting reflecting on on how that's changed, even in my time as, as an MP, um, sort of almost by definition, a lot of the threats to national security come from overseas, come from beyond our borders. And 
you think about the way that Australia's relationship with the world beyond our borders has changed so much in, in, in this decade and previous decades, how interconnected and independent we've become and how that has implications across so many spheres of our life. So, you know, our economy is so much more interconnected with international um, you know, trade channels. And so now we have supply chain resilience issues. You know, our, our population um, and our migration program is so much larger now. Well, not during COVID, but you yeah. know, over the last 10 years. Broadly. Yeah. Broadly, um, both in permanent and temporary migration. And that creates new risks associated with movement of people. So we have you know, biosecurity risks. We have risks with interference with diaspora communities. Um, and then in my own portfolio, you know, perhaps the, the biggest change in the way that Australia interacts with the world has been the internet um, that has, you know, brought so many aspects of the world, you know, directly into our immediate context, you know, it sort of ended the tyranny of distance in a lot of respects. Um, and that too has brought new threats um, uh, to our national security, you know, cyber-enabled uh, espionage, cyber-enabled foreign interference. Um, so in totality, I mean, you know, it sometimes feels like national security policy is constantly burgeoning and constantly growing and it's a bigger, bigger part of our political debate. But I really do think that is a function of just, you know, the, the more intense way that Australia engages with the rest of the world and the more complex nature of our interests there. And look, I think that's, that's really useful to hear because one of the, you know, one of the questions we grapple with at the college is that, uh, that idea that security is becoming defined so broadly that, you know, in some instances, I guess we can be accused of securitizing everything. But on the other hand, I'm, um, quite keen to encourage a view that we should think very inclusively about security, that you know, security, if you like, is not a – it's not necessarily, uh, a, a divisive concept. It should be about really, Extending the idea of security to, to to the broader community, and I, I guess one question that I'd like to um, just dwell on there for a moment before we move uh, back into cyber is how you would see security um, intersecting with with national identity in a country like Australia. Yeah, I mean that that that's a, a really um, important point, and it's one that I, I sort of welcome that you make a lot of the time. My view is that in the political debate, um, a lot of people on the left of politics in particular don't take the question of national identity seriously enough. You know, I think there are really significant benefits <laughs> from a strong sense of national identity. Um, you know, it's the best vehicle for collective action humanity has ever had. You know, if nothing else, the nation state is the the, the most uh, effective mechanism of levying taxation. Um, so, you know, if you want a nation state building public goods. Um, if you want a, a nation state building, you know, infrastructure of national significance, um, national identity is really important. We know this from development economists and people that study um, emerging countries, people like Paul Collier, they see that in countries with weaker senses of national identity, it's harder to encourage people to make those personal sacrifices in the name of a greater good, you know, to pay a higher rate of taxation, to build, you know, infrastructure that benefits the collective, to build institutions that provide public goods that benefit the collective. I mean... There are some people that kind of get uncomfortable when we talk about national identity because it takes you straight to that nationalism type space and, you know, state and state conflict. But really also um, national identity is the basis for the welfare state, for, for taxation that levied to support the welfare state. I mean, national identity at its core, when you you go to the scholars that study mm. this, people like Benedict Anderson, the, the original scholars of, yeah. of what a nation imagine state communities, is. Imagine communities, yeah. Imagine political community. You know, it, it's something that exists in the mind of people and, and, it, and it boils down to, you know, what do I share in common with the other people in this nation? What are the shared interests? What are the shared, um, you know, the mutual regard between citizens? Um, and what we're finding, particularly in the modern world, is that that's politically constructed. It's something that needs to be invested in. You know, we, we really need to highlight the things we have in common. Um, because if we don't, the lowest common denominator um, for national identity is ethno-nationalism. You know, it's something you can point to. You say, well, all ancestors look the same way. That's not an option for a country like Australia. A country like Australia needs to be a, uh, a country built on ideas, built on shared values, built on a shared mission. And that's something that we need to build, not just political leaders, but artists, authors, citizens. You know, like what does it mean to be Australia is something that we need to construct for ourselves. That's um, I think that, that that that's a really important point, and goes to that question of of whether, in fact, uh, the national interest and and security is something that that if you like is for everyone. It moves far beyond the 
the the rarefied circles of of bureaucrats or indeed of, of parliamentarians. And I, I just note for our listeners, uh, Tim, that your book, I think it's the, the Golden Country, your your um your relatively recent book, I think it was a, a year or two ago now, on Australia migration identity. Uh, I suspect that's going to be a, a pretty rich text for this for our listeners to um. To explore, I, I couldn't endorse it enough. Really. No, well, indeed, indeed, uh, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll, um, I'll leave the endorsement there for the moment. I do <laughs> want to mention another book you've written a bit later in the podcast, if we get time as um, as well. But let's go now to cybersecurity and to the the evolution of cybersecurity and cybersecurity policy in Australia. And you, you you've opened your remarks today with the way in which uh, the internet has made such a difference to defining uh, threats and risks to a country like Australia. Um, and in the last five years in particular, uh, and I pick five years because I think that's when, uh, that, that's the period since we had, if you like, the, uh, the, the, I think the pretty comprehensive cybersecurity strategy that the, um, the government put out, the Turnbull government put out in 2016. Uh, in that time, we've also seen so much change, change in the international environment, uh, the very clear threat of foreign interference in, uh, for example, the uh, the United States, um, including in an electoral context, uh, cyber-enabled disinformation in Australia, globally, everywhere, um, and risks to infrastructure, you know, growing awareness of these issues. I'd also argue that we have seen a range of um, pretty substantial national responses in Australia over those five years. I've mentioned uh, the 2016 strategy, which I think got the ball rolling in some respects. There was another strategy uh, last year, of course. There's been um, pretty significant, uh, if you like, enhancement of the um, the resourcing and, and the mission of uh, government agencies such as uh, the Australian Signals Directorate in particular. You know, th- there's a pretty significant list of things that have been done in Australia to respond to this challenge. So it'd be really interesting to hear your take um, either on what's been done right, on what there needs to be more of, on what you'd like to see done differently. Uh, are we taking it seriously enough? Well, that's a big question, <laughs> Rory. Um, I, I think sort of situating this from 2016 is is probably a good starting point. I mean, you can go back further. I mean, the Gillard government established the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, um, and so there, there'd been a, a timeline of, of, of progressing this um, before 2016. But 2016 was a watermark, and Malcolm Turnbull initiated the, the 2016 Commonwealth Cybersecurity Strategy. And that was, like many things Malcolm did, um, ambitious and wide-ranging um, and sort of covered the field in, in, I think, a very important way. He also established the equivalent of my position, um, so a dedicated role in the executive um, for cybersecurity policy. Um, and we've done a lot of things really well since then. Um, I think it, it's universally regarded that the, the technical capabilities that we have uh, within the Australian government, within the Australian Signals Directorate and the ACSC, um, increasingly within the Australian Federal Police, and we've seen some very prominent wins um, for the AFP in recent times with Operation Ironside and, and OM. Um, you know, we have literally world-leading capabilities um, within those defence, intelligence, and security silos. I think the kind of the ongoing project that we that we need to engage in is um, is really projecting that capability outside those silos into the broader community. You know, the, the thing about cybersecurity is that, you know, conceptually it's not like uh, defending a castle. You know, cybersecurity is about defending an ecosystem. Um, you know, the, the, the Defence Mobilisation Review that was um, published under FOI recently really highlighted that, you know, in a cyber conflict, many of the targets will not be government. In fact, the majority of the targets will be private sector organisations. Um, and defending those networks is, is a complex task. You can't do it from within um, a defence and intelligence silo. So, again, cybersecurity is the thing I love about it is that it's an evolving area of policy. You know, there's not an accepted dogma or doctrine about you know this is the way we do things, and you know there are two camps arguing about you know well this is the the realist camp or this is the other camp, and really this is an evolving area where we are defining terms as we go, we are you know exploring concepts as we go. Um, and, and one of the things that I've tried to sort of inject in this conversation is saying, well, look, instead of taking a securitized lens to, to cybersecurity, in a lot of ways, we need to sort of view this more with a public health lens. We need to think about this in terms of population health and about the, the differing 
um, vulnerabilities and the differing harms that can be faced by different organisations um, in the community. We need to tailor our interventions in the same way. Um, a lot of the time, you know, there's a, a tendency in cybersecurity policy to, um, you know, advise the problem away, you know, to say, look, here are the, the, the controls and the mitigations that everyone should use in order to protect themselves. You know, please download this PDF and if you fill out this checklist and you do all these things within an organisation, yeah. you will be cyber Cyber secure. hygiene and the essential eight and so forth. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and it just, it, that, that just doesn't reach audiences um, and particularly um, audiences that aren't already engaged, like small business, um, for example, or or cash-strapped um, um, community organisations, not-for-profits. Um, so taking a public health lens, I like to compare it to, well, how do we as a nation address the threat of HIV AIDS? You know, Australia had a world-leading public health response to that. And we didn't respond to, to that threat by sharing, you know, high-level research about the latest antiretrovirals or, you know, sharing scientific papers. We said, no, who are the at-risk communities here? How can we reach them? How can we help them minimise harm? So, you know, a, a intravenous drug users need a different message and a different um, medium to, to reach them than do, say, you know, gay men at the time um, or sex workers. Um, and, you know, the Australian HIV AIDS response, the, the great thing about it was just how differentiated it was, how tailored to individual at-risk communities it was. And, and that's something that we're still developing the capability to do in Australian cybersecurity policy. The um, the challenge going forward, though, is one where, you know, on the one hand, we want to bring together the private sector and government beyond the traditional security community and, if you like, uh, ordinary citizens as well. At the same time, the you know the threat environment is evolving really, really fast. I mean, it's not just that the international geopolitical environment has deteriorated, I think, significantly since 2015 or even going back earlier than that, um, and capabilities continue to, in, to uh, increase and to be used often with, 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 um, with great impunity. Um, so it's not as if that um, we're, we're in a race here that um, even by running at a great speed, we're going to be necessarily able to hold the line or, or win. Um, what would you list as your, I guess, your, your, your checklist of, of priorities if you were to encourage the sort of resilience you've talked about in, in a few practical examples? <laughs> um, so I, I think the, the the most important thing we need to be doing to build resilience through the ecosystem is to um, you know convey uh, messages about controls and mitigations and change behaviours we need to do um, through established channels. So if you're trying to reach um, a small business, you know don't set up a, a PDF on a website that no one ever goes to. You know go to the places they already uh, um, seek out trusted information from. So in cybersecurity, a lot of the time that's their bank. First time they've ever used two-factor authentication would be when their bank put it on their bank account, right? So lots of small businesses have a, a relationship of trust with their bank manager. Let's project out that message through bank managers. Um, increasingly, insurers are playing that role. So insurers have been getting completely rinsed in recent times, to, to put it colloquially, by the, the increasing payouts um, caused by this ransomware wave we're going through at the moment. And in response, um, they are you know, not only... Uh, capping payments, um, and uh, but they're also um, imposing requirements saying, look, we're not going to insure you unless you're doing these fundamental things. You know, we're going to get you to um, sign off that you're doing doing these things. Um, industry associations, another way, like, you know, a lot of organisations when they're trying to work out how to comply with, you know, new industry regulation or with OH&S regulation, you know, they'll go to their industry association for advice. So these are the, the the kind of vectors we need to be pushing out through. It's it's a cliche in cybersecurity, but it's not the technical skills. Mm. It's almost the corporate affairs skills. It's the communication, the sociology type skills that we really need to be investing in. And I just would note that, um, and we'll come back to this as well a bit later on. It's um, it, it's very clear that this is some, this is not only, if you like, your, your your political mission at the moment. It's a personal passion. It's an area that you've um, invested a lot of your own knowledge and, and education in. And I'd love to come back to that later about how how do parliamentarians, if you like, um, get their heads around these issues uh, if if they're relatively new. You can say it. Right. I'm, I'm a geek. I'm unapologetic yeah, you're, you're about a geek. it. Okay, there you go, Tim. You're a geek. Welcome. Um, a few specifics though. Um, and really, maybe testing your uh, your geek skills here. Um, there's there's two or three um, very very clear issues that you've um, you've expressed uh, views on in the last year or so, 
where, where you've warned of very specific risks and, and what can be done. Ransomware you've mentioned already, but it would be good to hear more from you about that. You've described it as, I think, the you know the, really the pressing cyber threat to Australia. I think you've got a private member's bill um, in uh, Parliament at the moment, and the question could be asked from opposition, why bother? <laughs> uh, so what is the, the ransomware challenge and what, what can be done? Well, so ransomware, it's, it's not my description of it. The Australian Cybersecurity Centre says that this is the, the, the highest threat facing Australian business at the moment. Um, ransomware is when um, a, a, an external actor um, uses access to um, IT networks um, to hold them to ransom for a payment in some regard. Now, classically, that was you know, access would be obtained to a network, everything would be encrypted, you couldn't use it until you paid the, the ransom. In recent times, we've seen increasing use of sort of double extortions, where not only is the network locked down, but then the threat to publish and disclose confidential information secured um, through those networks is then um, is then added as another um, extortion um, mechanism. Now, this is an enormous issue. Um, it's cost the Australian nation about a billion dollars a year on best estimates. We don't have good data on this, but best estimates. Um, ransom payments are a tiny fraction of that. And mm. if you think about that conceptually, that makes sense. What they, sort of scale? What sort of scale payments? I mean, they, they vary pretty widely, I imagine. But what sort of scale of payments are we talking? So last month, the US insurer made a forty million dollar payment ransom payment. Um, you know, the Colonial Pipeline attack was a five million dollar payment. JBS Meatworks was an eleven million dollar payment. Um, you know, the the, the companies that um, make a living off of tracking uh, crypto exchanges, you know, there's all these payments are made by by cryptocurrencies. Um, they've estimated that that last year there are about four hundred million dollars worth of of ransom payments made. Um, and you can see how that f- becomes creates a vicious cycle. Like that's a lot of resource going into these criminal enterprises that have be- been be- you know becoming more sophisticated as a result, more ambitious um, as a result. Um, you know, but it's that, partly the principle of the thing, really. I mean, it's it's part of it's it's about not encouraging, not encouraging more. Yeah. So the former um, head of um, MI6 was in the Financial Times two weeks ago, uh, drawing a direct analogy with um, the way we approach payment of of hostage taking um, in terrorist examples. And you know, he made the case that we should just ban this outright um, because you know we did that with with hostage taking, and that was very difficult. Um, but ultimately, it's worthwhile because you know it was a disincentive to these incidents, and it um, um, and it stopped resource going into making the, the problem worse. I, I haven't gone that far from opposition, frankly. Um, I, I, you'd be surprised how often these payments are made. It's about thirty percent of incidents result in the payment being made, and and my experience talking to incident responders, talking to Australian organisations that have suffered these attacks, that's about right in Australia as well. About three in ten organisations pay, and inevitably when they pay, it's because they are providing like critical services, critical infrastructure, there is, you know, there are lives on the line if they can't get their systems operating and therefore they make, choose to make a, a payment. Um, I think we, we, it's possible we'll get to a world where payments are banned, um, but there's just a bit of a maturity, cyber maturity uh, journey to go on before we get to that point. We don't want to pull the rug out from under people immediately. And that was part of the rationale for the private members bill that, that I introduced, not banning payments, but requiring that if you're going to make a payment, you disclose that to the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, and you disclose that with um, you know, actionable threat intelligence relating to that attack. You know that you've collected in responding to it. So, indicators of compromise about how the attack was made, how, how the attack has got into your network. Um, you know what what crypto wallets are payments being made into. Um, you know how did you engage with the 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 attackers? That kind of thing. Um, and again, that that's you know frankly intended to provide a moderate disincentive um, to making payments, um, you know, engaging uh, government on that. Um, but really what it's intended to do is to create an information base for law enforcement, signals intelligence and policymakers to, to tackle this macro problem. So in the first instance, some payments would still be made, but there'd be that greater transparency, at least for government, to uh, to take action. Yeah, so the way our bill works is that the, the the disclosure requirement only kicks in if you choose to make a payment. And why, I mean, just, just as an aside, and we can come back to this at the end about the role of opposition, why why, why take the approach you've taken when when a private member's bill is not actually going to, in, in itself, achieve the result? 
Well, we we tried to be constructive in on on these issues from opposition. I mean, opposition doesn't have many benefits at all. Believe me, I was elected in 2013, and I'm sick to death of it. Um, but probably that one of the few saving graces is that you can spend more time actually out in the industry, out with you know, academic experts, um, policymakers outside of government, um, you know, listening, seeing what the trends are, and you've got a bit more space to suggest new ideas. You know, you're not sort of constrained by, um, you know, by public service bureaucracies, things like that, in, in terms of actually delivering, uh, in, you know, proposing change. So I've sort of conceptualised my role from opposition as really empowering the people trying to make change inside government. You know, if I can be making an argument for something that someone inside government's trying to get something up on, like, I'm happy with that. And to a credit, I'm, I, you know, I really welcome the fact that, that Karen Andrews, the Home Affairs Minister, has said that, you know, she's considering um, uh, this proposal for a, a mandatory notification and a former guest on this podcast, um, Mike Pizzullo, the, the secretary there, when we put this um, to him in, in Home Affairs, um, he, he said that he could understand the rationale for it um, in a similar way and said that, that was under active consideration. So one other instance, if you like, or one other specific example where you've made a basically a policy suggestion into the debate uh, in recent times in, in, in cyber is the question of attribution. Uh, and of course, uh, as in any form of deterrence, uh, there's always a, a debate about wh- whether or not uh, an attack, the source of an attack can be identified and whether uh, publicly identifying, blaming, attributing uh, the origin of that attack is actually going to help in deterring uh, further such action. Um, Attribution is a very contested issue in cyber security, uh, particularly from a, I guess, from a technical point of view, uh, there are circumstances where attribution cannot be 100% um, verified. It's, it's, you know, it's high, high probabilities, but not certainties. And there are clearly big diplomatic sensitivities that can come with uh, attributing a cyber attack to a foreign state, for example. Uh, It would be interesting to understand what your proposal was and what your thinking is about Australian policy on uh, on attribution. Well, I mean, I think where the starting point for this conversation is to reiterate what you said. Like, attribution is not easy. Um, And from where I sit in opposition, you know, I don't have access to, you know, internal uh, analysis and intelligence from a government. So, you know, my view is necessarily that of an outsider. Um, But but that does inform my view in some pretty important ways because, you know, I hear the foreign minister, I hear the defence minister um, say that, you know, we will attribute cyber attacks on Australian targets when it's in the national interest on a case-by-case basis. I don't know what that means. I don't know what the factors that go into that decision-making process are. I don't know how the government weighs that up. There is a formal attribution policy um, document within government. It's owned by Home Affairs. It's classified. So we don't know what goes into those decisions. Um, but I-, I think that, as I was saying earlier, cybersecurity policy is an evolving area. It's an area that's contested where there aren't established dogmas. I think this is an area that would benefit from some discussion about really how to go about this. Um, you're correct to say that deterrence um, is probably an, an over-emphasised um, uh, aspect of attribution policy making. Um, you know, you're unlikely to deter um, some of the attacks that we've publicly attributed. So the Russian SolarWinds campaign um, against the US government, we signed on to that attribution with the Americans that the Russians are responsible for an espionage campaign against a large number of, of, of very sensitive uh, US government agencies. That attribution is not going to deter the Russians from doing that again. Um, it wouldn't deter any nation state from from doing that again. Um, and you know, but it's worth thinking about how other audiences receive these attribution messages. So it is important to be specific and clear about what the Australian government's view is on international norms of responsible state behaviour in cyberspace. So calling out specifically, you know, where the lines are. And, and what is in, in the inside lines and what's outside the lines. I have to say, reading the attribution on that we signed on to and, and the foreign minister's statement on the Russian SolarWinds campaign, it's not clear to me what the specific norm of international, uh, international norm of um, responsible state behaviour that the, the Russians transgressed there. You know, historically, we viewed espionage as a legitimate end of states. I mean, we do it. We can't call other countries out for doing something that that we do, um, oh, it does depend a little bit on getting caught, surely. <laughs> well, I mean, in a lot of ways, the the SolarWinds campaign is is the way you want nations to engage in espionage. They they cleaned up after themselves. They didn't leave 
uh, vulnerabilities um, in the networks for other people to exploit, for criminals to exploit. Um, you know, it was a it was a very well executed and, and thought through campaign. There's been some speculation that the aspect of that campaign that we've been calling out in these attributions is the supply chain attack nature of it. So, you know, some people are of the view that attacking a supply chain um, is sort of uniquely destabilizing. You know, it, it's it's something that causes um, harm and uncertainty beyond the initial attack, and that's something that we should call out. Well, okay, if that's what it is, we should be explicit about that, is my view. Um, and so, so the international, um, other members of the international community is an important um, audience for these attributions. But the last audience that I think is is often overlooked, and it's something that you know a, a good friend of the college, uh, Catherine Manstead, has pointed out, um, is the, the general public, citizens. Um, so one area where we have um, been quite explicit is, is that we've said, Look, when there are cyber attacks on democratic institutions in Australia, the most important audience for any attribution message is the Australian public. They have uh, the most important interest in knowing that those institutions, um, the integrity of those institutions is protected, knowing who is mounting an attack on them and what the consequences of that attack are. Now, there have been two cyber um, espionage attacks on the Australian parliament in my term as an MP. Um, we understand from responses to answers and questions on notice that technically the, the government knows who is responsible for those attacks. This a, is not a state actor, presumably. A state actor. I mean, the Prime Minister has said yeah. that it was a state actor, yeah. in inverted commas. Um, but there's never been an explicit um, uh, attribution of who that state actor is. Now, it's worth noting that that's different from the practice on attribution in other countries. You know, when we've recently seen cyber attacks on the parliaments of Norway, Sweden, Netherlands, those attacks were attributed um, by those governments. Presumably, I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think you're, 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 it sounds like you're, you're setting up a particular, a particular norm for attacks on democratic institutions. Uh, that is, a, you know, a commitment up front to be uh, transparent in attribution. Um, there's also the, the the diplomatic question, and of course, one of the criticisms that's made of Australia in recent years by by China, in particular, is, is this this claim that uh, that Australia is um, is calling out China on so many issues, with or without foundation. Presumably, um, more frequent attribution, direct unilateral attribution of cyber attacks to, for example, China, and I'm I'm not going to any specific instance here, but, um, you know, there's a pretty small list of state actors uh, when, when we start having this conversation, that would have its own effect on the diplomatic relationship. It's potentially a 15th, a 15th point on the notorious list. So how do you think a country like Australia should handle the diplomacy of attribution when for all of the criticism that's made of China as um, as being really blunt regarding China, when you read most of our cybersecurity public-facing documents, they don't include the names of states at all? No, and indeed, we have never um, publicly um, attributed a cyber attack on Australia that was only in a cyber attack on Australia to China. Australian government has never done that. We've we've participated in joint attributions with other nation states of campaigns around the world um, in, engaged in by the Chinese government, but never any attack solely on Australia. That, that is notable um, in the context of some of the rhetoric we see from from political leaders about this. I think on the broader point you make about well, there may be diplomatic fallout from making an attribution. Like yes, there may well be. Like there are costs to to um, doing things like this, and and that's why I think it's worth having the discussion, weighing up, you know, what's in this matrix that causes us to make a decision about whether to make an attribution. Um, like, I, but on I, Parliament, you say we, we we if it's on a Parliament on on a democratic institution, we should just do it as I, a norm. Well, I think I think the government should articulate that that the interests involved in ensuring the integrity of our democratic processes justify wearing some costs on the diplomatic side. I mean, I say that because cyber-enabled foreign interference in electoral processes is really the norm now. You know, ASPE's engaged in a number of, uh, of research projects on this. And when you look at um, uh, elections um, in, in, the, in democratic countries since around sort of 2015, you know, it's more likely than not that there was um, uh, cyber-enabled foreign interference in those campaigns. I mean, you pick up the Facebook releases a monthly report on coordinated inauthentic behaviour on its on its social media networks, and you just flip through that report. It's a thick report. <laughs> like, this is going on everywhere. 
Um, so hack and leak campaigns by one nation state against the, uh, the democratic processes of another state are a really big deal and it's something that we ought to be clear with the world that if you engage in that kind of conduct, if you attack our democratic institutions, um, we're going to tell the Australian public about it. Like they're, they're the ones that we owe, owe the greatest obligation to here. We'll be right back after this short break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So let's move to, um, I guess, the, the last point I want to make on cyber, or the last point I want to explore on cyber before um, I go back to a little bit. Tim, to your your worldview, your your your, your big picture, um, still on cyber and the the broader challenge for Australia. Uh, you've we've talked about a few specifics. We've talked uh, about disinformation. How do you see the the trends playing out over the next few years? Electoral um, inter- interference could be a norm globally. Um, disinformation a norm globally. Authoritarian states come at this. From a very different um, foundation than um, than democratic states, we're seeing uh, greater resolve in some parts of the democratic world. I mean, how, how does this contest end, <laughs> or, um, how, or how does it settle? I should say. Yeah, it, look, what we're confronting at the moment is um, a new experience, and that's the collision of the information systems of techno authoritarian states with the information systems of of Western democracies. You know, before the internet, those information systems didn't interact a whole lot. Um, now they're interacting you know, every second of the day. Um, and I think we ought to have a first principles conversation around what that means. Um, you know, one of the things that I've pointed out is just how naive we were going into this. You know, there's a, a fantastic speech that Bill Clinton gave in 2000 uh, marking the, the signing of a trade deal between um, the US and, and China where he sort of cavalierly said, you know, um, in the in the 21st century, freedom will be spread via cell phones and cable modems. Um, and he said, you know, authoritarian countries, they could try to regulate the internet, but it'd be like trying to nail jelly to a wall. It's just not possible. I think he called it jello. Jello, because, uh, yeah, that's it's not the, very American. Just being they? culturally yeah. specific there, go on. Um, yes. And you, you go, you look at yeah. that in 20 years um, in, the, in the future, you look back on that and just think how naive we were, you know, like Le- Marxist-Leninist um, uh, parties running authoritarian states um, came to this battle prepared. <laughs> like they have been doing information warfare since day dot. Controlling an information environment through propaganda and censorship is core to the way that those organisations operate. Um, and in Australia, you know, frankly, our approach to our democracy, um, to our, our information system has just been benign neglect. You know, all of our, of our democratic institutions, not just our parliament or our political parties, but our media, um, our civil society groups, it's a Catholic trend, have been in decline. You know, their, their, their resilience has been um, uh, under attack and well in decline for a, a long, long time. So I really think we need to, to think carefully about how we build resilience in Australia um, at that intersection point between information systems. How much of this begins with education? And I mean, I mean education at school age. Uh, 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 an extraordinary amount, Rory. It's not a sexy answer. It's not yeah. a sort of securitised answer. But, you know, a big part of the answer to this is citizenship. You know, like the, we need to think about what we are contributing to the information environment. You know, when you share that rubbish on social media without thinking about it or that sort of reinforces your um, existing biases, um, you know, that, that sort of has a, a negative consequence for our whole information system. 
You know, like you look at our modern um, information environment and it, it's a hackable information environment, right? Because um, the institutions where we come together as a, as a people, as a nation, um, and I should point out here, it's no coincidence that the nation state, the modern nation state, rose at the same time as the mass media. You know, you needed a mass media to give people that sense of shared identity so that they could see themselves and other people within a nation. You know, whereas at the moment, like the mainstream media, um, just the audience of it has collapsed, you know, extraordinarily. You know, that the you go into the 60s and, you know, it's about seven out of 10 Australians followed politics on the TV news on one of four channels right, on the TV news. Um, you know, now it's like two in 10. It's, a, it's an incredible collapse in that shared space of our democracy. And in, and in exchange, we have social media spaces that are, um, you know, the one thing the internet has done is it's collapsed transaction costs. So it's made it easier for us to find and work with other people that share our interests. So you get these very niche communities of interest emerging um, online. Um, but they're, they're communities of interest. They're not, um, they're, they're sort of tearing us apart in a society rather than bringing us together. They're emphasizing the differences rather than the things that we have in common. That is a very long way of saying. Um, I, I think a lot of these problems um, stem back to um, the, the need to build new institutions of um, of unity in our in our nation um, in the face of these threats. I, I, I'm glad that um, you've, you've got a, um, a an opportunity there, as well as a, a reflection on the you know the gloom and the deterioration in the uh, in, in the security and, and national interest environment that, that you, you're looking to some solutions. And I, I would want to end on that note in a moment on on, on what lies ahead. But I first just want to ask you a little bit more about the role of opposition in national security policy, um, whether it's in your particular uh, subject area or just more generally. Um, there's an interesting debate that we explore on this program a little bit, which is you know the nature of bipartisanship um, and at what point is bipartisanship about uh, really pre presenting a much more unified approach to protecting the national interest, and at what point is bipartisanship about potentially shutting down debate in ways that are not helpful to the national interest? So it would be great to have some of your framing thoughts on what you think the role of um, a good opposition should be in national security policy, and maybe how you you practice that yourself. Well, I've had a lot of experience in opposition Indeed. in national security policy in Australia. Or, I mean, I, th I suppose what I'd say is that. Um, a lot of the role of an opposition in national security policy happens outside the public eye. Um, and, and, and that's not to say that um, there's a bit of, there's a tendency sometimes to fetishize conflict, right? Like, you know, we see question time, we see parties throwing stuff at each other. And when you don't see that, people think, oh, well, the system's, you know, not, not working, right? A lot of these national security issues, you know, the seriousness of them and the gravitas and also, you know, the shared um, perspective that both sides of politics have on the, the the seriousness of these issues leads to a lot of the work of opposition being done within the institutions of the parliament outside of the public eye. So in committees like the the um, PJCIS or, or even the Public Accounts and Audit Committee, um, where oppositions play a very active role, um, not as you know signing off on government work, but on on improving and and building in safeguards and and guardrails to what the government is doing. You know, a lot of the time people see PJCIS processes and say, oh, it's a unanimous <coughs> PJCIS report. And for those for those few listeners who don't know the PJCIS, <laughs> Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security. Yes, yes which considers all of the, the, the national security bills that go through the parliament and they'll see a, you know, a joint report from the PJCIS and think, oh, well, where is the opposition? Neglecting the fact that there are literally dozens of of amendments recommended in those reports, and they're framed as government amendments because they 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 are signed onto by the government. But you know those those processes are a function of the role of the opposition members in those committees. I mean, in my own portfolio, the Joint Committee on Public Accounts and Audit um, is the the statutory committee that receives reports from the Auditor General, um, and and you know this is a body that can, uh, a committee that can inis initiate uh, you know, parliamentary inquiries into auditor um, reports and sort of, you know, hold the government to account on how it's responding to those things. That's played an incredibly important role in building cyber resilience within Commonwealth entities in, in our political system. So, you know, the, the, the ASD's top four was mandated as a, a mandatory compliance uh, mechanism for all Commonwealth em entities to implement um, in their organisations eight years ago. Um, but as of today, around three of 10 Commonwealth entities have fully implemented that. 
the top four. Um, now, in that eight-year period, the ANAO has had a series of, of audits of entities where they've you know, identified this this compliance problem, and the JCPAA has had a series of parliamentary inquiries that have produced, again, bipartisan reports saying, "Hey, this is a problem. This is the way we need to fix it." One outcome of that is the the annual Commonwealth um, Cyber Posture Report that's provided to Parliament. It's a, a very important um, source of information about the cyber resilience of the Australian government wouldn't have happened without the JCPAA or the ANAO. Um, similarly, um, m- most recently, um, the government's committed to mandating the essential aid across all Commonwealth entities. Again, something that's driven by the NAO and the JCPAA. And finally, after report after report of failure about you know requiring Commonwealth entities to sort of take on this task themselves, when often the capability isn't there, you know incredible capabilities in in in, in ASD in the central agencies, but when you get a little bit further out, quite dodgy, including I should say the archives, you know it's store cabinet documents. <laughs> um, they got a really shocking ANAO report um, three years ago. Um, and, but in response to being called out by that in JCPAA and ANAO, the government is now adopting this hubbing approach where, you know, bigger entities, you know, help out the cybersecurity of smaller ones. And we're still early in the transition stage, but I think that's a, a very positive um, um, uh, outcome that, again, would not have happened without the role of opposition out of the media, out of the public eye, within the institutions of the parliament, um, driving an accountability agenda. So there is some job satisfaction in that in, in that regard, Tim. But I can I can see the um uh the uh you know the, the hard struggle of that over over many years. There, there, uh, there are sometimes. there aren't many people in this country that are just thrilled by the PSPF and the ISM and the JCPAA and the ANAO. But I love it. Well, thank you. Um, and and incidentally, before we go to a sort of the future, um, interaction with the the agencies, the departments and agencies of the national security community. From opposition, when you've, you know, you're clearly coming at these issues with this with this seriousness, um, but there's only so much, if you like, that you can learn from the agencies, and only so much they can share with you. Um, does that work reasonably well, or do you see ways in which that could be done differently? Um, I mean that there are there are legislative constraints here, and there are limits on the the amount that. Um, Opposition members. So I don't sit on the PJCIS, for example. So you know, I'm not a part of th- those briefings. Um, and as a result of that, sort of most of my interactions with with agencies, with security and intelligence um, agencies in particular, comes through parliamentary mechanisms. So you know, through uh, inquiries, through Senate estimates, um, and you know, there are some limitations of that. But I do think that that is an important accountability mechanism. Um, you know, I, I do recommend to listeners, you know, just grab the handsets of um, the of Christina Keneally uh, questioning Mike Pizzullo on cybersecurity policy. It's really fascinating. Um, you know, they're, they're two people that think really deeply about these issues and they're interrogating them in a way that, you know, uh, I enjoy watching it. <laughs> Democracy in action. Yeah. Um, look, so last point, Tim, and that is the um, the future. So you you published uh, another book uh, some years ago now, I think 2015, uh, with your, I think, uh, your co-author, it was uh, Claire O'Neill, Two Futures, uh, looking at Australia, I thought with a reasonably optimistic eye, um, you know, about the challenges. New MPs. Yeah, the challenges for, I think it was the next 25 years, you took something of a futures analysis approach, which was close to our hearts here at the National Security College, and you looked at the challenges and opportunities for Australia uh, across all aspects, the economy, education, environment, you know, democracy, resilience. Security was kind of a, sub, a subtext to that book in my view, but um, but not, not in the foreground. The world's changed. Um, you've seen and done a lot in the last six years, and I don't know whether you can speak for your co-author or not, but how has your thinking changed from that book? If you were writing a book like that today, what would the picture be? Yeah. So the premise of that book, we were sort of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed new MPs, um, and you get to Canberra and you're immediately hit by the shock that everything you're doing is short-term and reactionary. <laughs> you know, it's it's what's the next interview, what's the next meeting, what's the next speech you're giving, it's sort of... You know, if you allow it to be, it's everything's the next 15 minutes in your life. And, you know, we didn't come to Canberra to be living for the next 15 minutes. And any change that's worth making in our society is is worth making for the long term and requires a, a, a sustained long-term commitment. So it was all, almost sort of a self-discipline mechanism um, that we imposed on ourselves. Like, well, look, let's sit down and say, what are the things happening around us now that are going to matter in 20 years' time? 
um, and, and what are we doing about shaping those outcomes? You know, what's this going to look like? And, you know, I, I look back to the topics we chose. We sort of, we had six chapters in the book and the first chapter was the health of our democracy, which we were really worried about. And we viewed that as a foundation for everything else. And, you know, frankly, the outcomes of surprise on the downside. Yeah. <laughs> there. Um, you know, with a big uptick during COVID, I should say, public trust has really spiked um, over the last 12 months, but every other metric, it's it's pretty dire. Um, but so, yeah, democracy, um, we had a, a, a technology chapter, we had a climate change chapter, uh, we had a future sources of growth for Australia chapter, and the final chapter was Australia's place in the world, um, and security was a subtext to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing that looking back is that things have moved far more quickly than we expected. Um, you know, in that Australia's Place in the World chapter, um, I can remember talking to experts at, at the ANU and people at the time just thinking, you know, what happens to Australia if, if the US takes a isolationist turn? Um, you know, where does that leave us? This is before Donald Trump. Mm. <laughs> and you, you were writing in about, what, 2014 or thereabouts? Yeah, 2014. And, yeah. and, you know, a, a lot of the great beats sort of said, oh, well, that will never happen. <laughs> um, you know, you'll, you'll hurt your credibility if you say that. Um, so, you know, we, we defanged some of that chapter. Um, on, on really confronting those issues in a way that I do regret because it, it kind of manifested um, very quickly um, uh, afterwards. Um, but, yeah, the, I mean, I, I suppose like a lot of the time I f- end up feeling like a conservative in mo- modern politics because I obsess about institutions. You know, I think the institutions of our democracy are really sick and I don't think people take enough care of them and I don't think that there is a positive agenda in renewing them. And I think that's a real problem because, you know, while I don't think we're in a world where, you know, there is a competing model of of um, of governing a nation that, you know, is competing for the hearts and minds of people, you know, you can see that techno-authoritarian model being exported to, to client states, you know, and there's a lot of evidence that, that authoritarian countries that are more adept at, at using those um, you know, technologies like, like AI and surveillance technologies for social control are more adept at holding power. Um, so, so that there is a, a there's a a real imperative to make the case of a democracy in a way that I'm really encouraged that Joe Biden is doing at the moment. Um, but the way that we do that is by living those values here in Australia, not by preaching them overseas or sort of tutting people or finger waving. We've got to live the benefits of, of democracy. We've got to invest in those institutions so that they can thrive and, and show the benefits um, of, of the model of our government. And, you know, for too long we've neglected these institutions and they're, they're showing the results. Tim, thanks for giving us that, that very broad view and long view of Australia's national security, our interests, our values, and indeed our identity, but also um, going to the very specific, um, I guess, challenges that we face in um, in cybersecurity. Uh, We look forward to welcoming you back to the college on a future occasion and um, wish you very well with your endeavours. Pleasure, Rory. Well, that's it for today. Don't forget to subscribe to the National Security Podcast if you haven't already and rate the show on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.